Welcome to Perfect Night In. I'm your host, Neil Perriman, and before I begin today's show, please allow me to plug my Patreon, where for as little as 78p an episode, you can support this podcast and help generate even more daft content for it. All the details can be found via patreon.com forward slash perfectnightin. Anyway, today's guest is John Rain, the man behind Smirshpod, the world's best and funniest James Bond podcast, and he's also one of the funniest people I know on Twitter, where he goes under the name Mr. Ken Shabby. So without any further ado, let's meet John. Hi, John. Welcome to Perfect Night In. Hi, Neil. It's a pleasure to be on this Perfect Night In. Could you begin by telling us where your Perfect Night In would ideally take place? I'd like to have a den. I'd like to have a house where I can just retreat to my den. I don't mean in a kind of shitty uh, man cave way. I just mean like a place where I can sit in sort of like a really comfy sofa with a, li- with a little puff for my feet and um, just sit in front of the telly and um, maybe have a, a, a beverage indulge in a perfect night in well you make yourself comfortable because it's 7 30 and time for your first choice grange hill you're very specific with the era of grange hill that you've chosen do you want to talk us through it yeah well it's series 12 now this was 1989 so i was 12 i'd not i'm not you know i've not long been at senior school and I went to senior school expecting it to be like Grange Hill, but obviously it wasn't. So I was living, I was living that fantasy vicariously through the characters of Grange Hill. I'm guessing school was a lot more boring in real life. A lot more. I remember having a dream uh, the d- night before I started senior school. I remember in the dream it was that I was hanging around with a cool gang like Robbie and Gonch and everybody. Of course, that never materialised. But this series particularly is one of my favourites um, because. I remember it so well, and everyone had kind of reached their peak. Everybody I loved in the series at that point really, really blossomed. So you had Gonch, who started off with Holloway, and then he lost Holloway, and then him and Robbie and Ziggy formed this little clique, and it was just really lovely to watch them together. They all had such great chemistry. And then Bronson was in his element here, and then the only sour note is Maula McCall and Ted. They were a bit shit. The Gridiron Gang, whatever they were called. But this episode just was like a stomach punch to all the children around the country. It was unbelievable. Danny Kendall was this sort of rebellious kid. He wanted to be an artist, but he was too much of a slacker and Bronson had it in for him. And he disappeared a few episodes before this. And it was a running theme of, has anyone seen Danny Kendall? And it was like, no. And at the end of this episode, Ziggy and Gonch and Robbie are running away from Maula McCall and the Gridiron Gang. And they hide in this underground car park and they find Mr. Bronson's car, which has also gone missing. And uh, it, they open the door and out falls dead Danny Kendall. Hey, boys, look. That's just Bronson's car we found. Look, Danny's in it. He's asleep, isn't he? Hey, Danny. Danny. Do you think he's all right? He ain't moving, is he? I think we'd better get help. Uh, how did he die? It was never really made clear. It is assumed some sort of drug or heart problem or something. I always assumed it was drugs because the end credits didn't kick in. It didn't go do 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 do. It kind of had this like minor chord thing, like and uh, so it's like, oh, we better go and get help. And then the rest of the series dealt with Danny being dead and everything. Yeah, it was, it was for a twelve-year-old. I mean, up to that point. It was very much like the uh, Grange Hill sketch from the young ones, you know, like, I'll get spaz, all that kind of thing. But this this was such an out-of-the-left-field, I couldn't believe it. 
And I think it resonated with a lot of people around my age at that time. Just couldn't believe that they'd seen a corpse fall out of the door of a car. So was Mr Bronson the prime suspect then? No, no. Well, he was kind of blamed because he'd driven Danny to it, because he's always on Danny's back. Like, you always... Kendall! Well, let me tell you, Kendall, that you now have a very definite appointment with me at 3.30pm in my office. And let me also tell you, warn you, that it is an appointment which you would be extremely ill-advised not to keep. Mrs McCluskey had seen, you know, potential and promise in him as an artist, so she'd allowed him to work on the mural in the school swimming pool, and Bronson didn't know he had permission, so he came and, Kendall, what are you doing up there, boy? And Kendall was like, oh, what's the point? And walked out and then disappeared, and then was found dead in Bronson's car. How did he get in the car? I think he stole it, because he was a bit of a nerdy well, you know, he was always... I think he had the potential to become a, a, a thief or something like that. I think he, you'd always see him wandering around with a red plastic bag sticking out of his pocket. So, yeah, I think he was always, I think he was secretly nicking stuff. But yeah, he stole Bronson's car, obviously, and then was sleeping in the back seat and died. So did Danny's death make Mr. Bronson change his ways? No, not really. No. No, he was, um, he was, you know, a lot of people blamed him for it but he didn't really change his ways. Um, I can't remember if he left at the end of the series or the end of the next one. I think he left when Ziggy and Gonch and Robbie left. I think he left at the same time. I seem to remember them having an end-of-year party and him making a speech saying, you know, despite the fact that I am a bit like Hitler because I've got the Hitler moustache. He doesn't say this, by the way. It's, it's all you know, hidden. It's all subtext, yeah. Yeah, and I wear a toupee, which is always funny when it falls off. Um... I am actually, you know, I'm actually a nice guy and I'm proud of you all and this sort of thing. He doesn't say that, but again, it's subtext. Um, so he goes out on a bit of a high, but he was he was a great villain and Danny was a great, um, I don't know, you can't really call him a protagonist because he was a bit, you, you suspected he was a bit of a druggy nerd-do-well, but it was a nice dynamic they had going. And apparently, the, the kicker is, in real life, they were famously really good friends and they kept in touch until Michael Shear died. Oh, that is nice. Mm. That's a nice uplifting end to quite a depressing episode. It's probably the saddest thing we're going to watch, I think. I think so. It's all happiness from here on in. Um, oh, yeah. Grange Hill starts at 7.30, takes up to 8 o'clock, and your next choice is... Well, my next choice is ever-decreasing circles. And again, being specific, Series 3, Episode 3, House to Let. And why have you chosen that episode so i mean over decreasing circles if you're not uh, familiar with it is a program it's written by um esmond and larby who did uh, the good life uh, and the brushstrokes and things like that and it's about somebody who's just hyper control freaky and he's played by richard Bryars. and um yeah it's a it's a suburban comedy but the the the, the plot of this episode particularly is brilliant because a house becomes available in the close and martin's very is richard Bryars' character Again, very controlling. He likes to have a neighbourhood watch so he can control the neighbourhood. But these people move in, move in via his neighbour Paul, played by Peter Egan, and he doesn't approve approve of Paul because Paul is a very much the opposite of him. He's a free spirit, very cool, good with the ladies, that sort of thing. Um, but he recommends these people, and they arrive at the pub, and they're called Dan and Diana Danby, and they're just so funny. Dan. Yes, Martin. I'm. Uh refereeing the Byfleet and District Under-13 Football League match this Saturday. Will you be a linesman? 
Oh, I'd love to. You could end up doing the job permanently, every Saturday morning, all through the winter. Could I really? <laughs> I don't know how old I would have been when this came out. I'd probably have been eight or nine, maybe. And I was just, I was just in love with... I, I loved Richard Briers anyway, because of rhubarb and things like that. But I absolutely loved him as Martin Bryce. But the way he interacts with Howard and Hilda is beautiful. Who are these um, neighbours in the neighbourhood who are very, very eccentric and boring? And they all dress, they dress exactly the same, like they're twins. Um, but Dan and Diana Danby are the same. And, oh, there's a scene in the pub which is just dynamite. It's so beautifully written and acted. Here's a poser. What's everybody's favourite jam? I'd have to go for Hilda's cherry. I've got a funny one I have. Mallow and ginger. I'm a straight up and down damsel. Strawberry for me, Martin. Well, now, if you're pushing me into a corner about it, blackcurrant. Oh, what about you, Anne? Raspberry. <laughs> Come on, Paul. Join in. You pick one. Uh, no, no, I, I'd prefer just to listen. Yes, it is interesting, isn't it? And they say the art of conversation is dead. Yeah, it's just one of those things that you see when you're young and you're just like, this is so brilliant. And I, I could watch this all day long. And you still get the same pleasure from watching it now as a grown-up? Yes, absolutely. Do you identify with um, Martin? Yes, oh, very much so, yeah. I'm not as much as a control figure with him, but I like things to be just so, which he does as well, and I get very annoyed... Like in old jobs, if I was a, if I was at a job and I felt like I had my feet under the table, and someone new started and they were very, oh, I'm a wacky new funny person. I used to instantly hate them. In much the same way Martin does of Paul, just I don't approve of you, because this is my this is my place. Yeah, I could watch this. So I've watched this so many times. This episode. I mean, Ever's Greeting Circles is one of those sitcoms where I can just put it on and just watch and watch and watch and binge watch it, as the kids call it these days. I just find it hard to believe that someone would gain so much pleasure from asking somebody what their favourite jam was. <laughs> Which reminds me, um, what's your favourite Monster Munch flavour? Uh, it's beef. Yeah, but I'm very specific. It's, it's, it's the um, Smith's Crisp Roast Beef, not the New Walkers ones. The Smith's ones, they did um, bacon and they did cheese and onion as well. Yeah, travesty. Uh, yeah, and they stopped doing them now because Walkers are shit at doing crisps. Yeah. We'll come back to Chris later after your next choice, which is at 8.30. BBC Television presents Tony Hancock in... Hancock's Half Hour, should I say. Hancock's Half Hour. Uh, the Missing Page. And why have you chosen The Missing Page out of all the episodes? Oh, it was a tough choice. It was between this and The Two Murderers. Um, again, I used to watch everything with my parents, and my dad was a massive Hancock fan. Um, so he'd always be either watching Hancock or he'd put on the goons or round the horn. So it was always going on in the house. There was always that noise going on. Um, but when we were, when I was young, we were early adopters of the VHS player. And I remember a neighbour had copied or pirated or copied my dad a, B a BBC tape of Hancock episodes. And there were, we had the nose and the cold and all that sort of thing. And on one of them was um, the missing page. And I remember sitting down and watching with my dad. And there's a moment... I mean, I loved Hancock anyway. I loved his timing on the radio particularly. But when you watch the TV episodes, you realise that he had wonderful physical comedy as well. And there's a moment in this episode, which is possibly my favourite example of, of Hancock as a performer, 
where he's in the library and he's, he can't tell Sid what happens in this book he's just read. So he has to mime it. And you can see everybody in the scene trying to remain professional whilst also corpsing. I mean, Sid James has, has a terrible time. He can't do it. He's just laughing all the way through. But you, you, can't, you can't do it justice by talking about it. Uh, it's just an incredible piece of physical comedy. But then, because it's Galton and Simpson, the, you know, they give Hancock his moment in the sun because he's so good at that sort of thing. Then the, 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 the plot kicks in that he's taking a book out from the library called Lady Don't Fall Backwards by Darcy Sarto. Um, and he's absolutely in love with this. It's a murder mystery book. And he gets to the end, and there's there's a, the, the last page is missing, so he doesn't know he's done it. Where is it? It's gone. The solution's on the last page. Oh, this is ridiculous. Here am I, a bag of tensed up nerves, waiting to see who did it, and this happens. It's enough to send a man round the twist. <laughs> what has happened to the last page? Let me have a look, then. Wow, well, well, there you are, then. See that jagged edge there? It's been torn out. Torn out? <laughs> yes, probably somebody lit a fag with it or something. <laughs> lit a fag with it? last page they can't do that there's plenty of other pages that skinny bloke for the start he could have gone without any hardship whatsoever <laughs> the last page of a murder mystery this is sheer unmitigated sadism all right all right all right what's done is done i mean blummy you've got your own little mystery right here haven't you who tore out the last page <laughs> i know who done it who the murderer so nobody know who it was <laughs> <laughs> So then he gives it to Sid to read, and Sid reads it, and he can't—he doesn't know either, obviously. So they start trying to work out who did it, and they go on this massive long search for people who—who who, who else has read the book to find out who did it. And it culminates in the fact that they get attacked by a man who's been obsessed with it for twenty years because he doesn't know who did it either. And then eventually, it turns out that the author died before he'd finished the book, but they decided to release it anyway as an unfinished work. It's such a beautiful. I mean, as always with Galton and Simpson, they they just love, they just love these sprawling plots, and it's just such a wonderful example. If you were to say to somebody, "Have you ever seen a Hancock Half Hour?" Put this on because you get the physicality, the timing, and you also get the wonderful writing. Two hundred and fifty quid worth of equipment here, all set up, waiting to blast me out of my chair. <laughs> bum 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 bum. This is more like it. This is better than who done it. You know where you are with this stuff. 250 quid per day. All I need now is a record. <laughs> so Hancock's half hour takes up to 9pm and your next choice, John, is another comedy icon. When they found him, he uh, still had the remote control in his hand. I'm Alan Partridge. Again, sorry to be specific, but it's series two and it's never say Alan again. And I think I know why you might have chosen it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, again, um, my childhood obsessions with all sorts of... I mean, James Bond is something that looms large in my life. It's something I discovered as a kid and uh, have been obsessed with for a very long time. So when... I mean, I knew Steve Coogan was a fan of Roger Moore because there's little elements of that in the first series. But when there's an entire episode of Alan Partridge devoted to the fact that he was going to do a James Bond marathon... It's just a dream come true for me because it's my two, it's two of my, you know, my top ten favorite things. Coogan as Partridge is just I could, it's like sweet nectar. I could sup at it all day long. It's just amazing, and having a knowing that he's a Bond obsessive and him talking about the James Bond, the order in which you'll watch them. You know, like um, Diamonds Are Forever, Dump Question Mark, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, oh no, that was when you put the roast in. Put the put the roast in when you see the the moon buggy. 
<laughs> but then again, you know, obviously the plot turns out that um, he, he uh, Sonia, uh, sorry, Sonia, Lynn has spilt Sunny Delight all over his James Bond videos, so he can't watch them. But his friend Michael has got his copy of The Spy Who Loved Me, and when he brings it around, because Michael's hanging around with an American that Alan doesn't approve of, uh, the Americans accidentally taped over Spy Who Loved Me with America's Strongest Man, which makes him Norfolk's maddest man. But he decides, rather than rob anybody of the James Bond experience, he decides to act out the beginning of The Spy Who Loved Me. Which, again, much like the Hancock example before, is just a brilliant example of Coogan just unleashed, really, doing his um, Partridge character, but also <laughs> giving you his in-depth breakdown of his love of the spy love me. I mean, it's pretty exact. We're on a submarine. Two sailors sit down and have a game of chess. And the cups start wobbling, and then a man who used to be in the Eden line comes in and goes, Why are the cups wobbling? What's going on? And then he... Yeah, you can stop doing that now. And then he pulls down the periscope thing, looks through it and goes, Oh, my God, the submarine's being eaten by a giant tanker. And then we cut to Moscow. And there's a man there, and he's Russian. He's got eyebrows, you know. And he's on the phone going, What, a whole submarine? You're joking! I'm going to have to tell some other Russians. See ya! Right, and, then, and then it cuts to James, Roger Moore, and uh, yes, he's with a lady. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's necking with her. Right, and he goes, I've got to go, love. Something's come up. Uh, yeah. He means his cock. Yeah. Again, a great example if you were to say to someone, oh, you haven't seen Alan Partridge, watch this, because it's just so beautiful. I think it's safe to say that this particular episode includes one of the greatest Alan Partridge moments of all time. No, 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 st no stop getting Bond wrong! <laughs> Goldfinger! And he, he also sums up the accents of the Bonds when she says, oh, I don't like the Welsh one. And he says, he doesn't do it in Welsh. He doesn't say, I'm Jones the Bond. 007. So he's got lots of little things like that. It's just eminently quotable, as all, all Partridge is. But because it's in the uh, Bond wheelhouse... I just, I, it's always in my mind, always. It's like a, a lovely curse, because I carry it around everywhere and it just makes me smile all the time. Glang, glang, a lang, a lang, a lang, a lang, a lang. Glang, a lang, lang, a lang, a lang. Nobody does it better. And I'm a naked woman in silhouette with a gun, spinning round. Makes me feel sad for the rest. Nobody does it. Oh, bit of nipple. I love that series because it reminds me of when I lived in a static caravan for three years. <laughs> in fact, the first thing I did when I moved in was play Gary Newman's music for chameleons. <laughs> did you stretch out on the bonquette in such a way that everyone could see your private parts? Obviously. <laughs> OK, John, we're at the halfway point now. And this is the point where I usually ask my guests uh, if they'd like a snack or a crisp or sweet and uh, what, what could I provide for you? You know what? I was obsessed with the child. Obviously, as a grown-up now, I, I can't have them very much. Uh, mainly because I've realised they're a bit shit. But toffee. Oh, yeah. One, two, three, four. I know what you want to do. Caramel. Hazelnut. Nutty spread. And chocolate. Toffee brings together everything. My mum would get it in every Christmas as a treat but it would go about five minutes after it had been opened. But they just, to me, they feel like luxury. Like, you know, when you get slippers at a hotel, toffees like that, it's like, oh, it's luxury. Okay, well, I'll pop out and get you some of those while uh, yeah. you introduce your 9.30 choice. My mum 
mother's heart and soul have gone halfway up the pole. My father's on the dole, but he's much too old, and his dog's beyond control. It's a proper rigmarole and a nuisance on the whole. I'm right. My 9:30 choice is, and again, the specifics come in, and I apologise for that. But this is the Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, age 13 and three quarters, episode two. Uh, and again, I was I was eight years old when this was on. And I remember I, I'd, I'd started reading the book. I think my mum had recommended it to me. And again, uh, most of it went way over my head. Um, but it's just, I remember reading it. And then around that time, getting the TV Times and it's saying in there that the TV series was starting. And I was so excited. And um, I absolutely loved it because it just nails every single bit to the point that when the second series comes in and they've replaced one element... It doesn't work. But the first, because in the second series, Lulu plays his mum. But in the first series, you've got Julie Walters' his mum, Stephen Moore as the dad, Beryl Reed is the gran. Um, you've got Stephen McIntosh as Nigel, his best friend, who obviously has gone on to do lots of different things. And Adrian himself, who sadly now doesn't act anymore. He's a nurse now, I believe. But he was in Doctor Who. He was. Yeah, he was in The Greatest Show on the Galaxy. Playing um, practically the same character. Practically the same character, but he does get murdered in that. So that's would explain his absence. Um, but it's just it's just a perfect combination. You have got Sue Townsend's incredible writing, and you've just got this brilliantly acted thing. And I mean, God, Julie Walters and this is Jesus at our absolute absolute peak here. And Stephen Moore could watch him forever. Can we have some fresh fruit and salad? Oh, it's a waste of time. Fresh stuff goes off too quickly. But I'm suffering from a lack of vitamins. Vitamins? They didn't exist when I was a lad and I'm all right. So why have you chosen episode two in particular? It's bits that have just stuck in my mind. The, the fact that he paints his room black, but before he can paint it black, because he's got noddy wallpaper from when he's a little kid. And his mum and dad are split up at this point. His, his mum's run off with Mr Lucas from across the road. And his dad's lost his job and he's going through these crises where he's watching children's telly and acting out, growing into a tree. So he says to his dad, I'm going to paint my room black. And he says, paint it whatever you like, I'm not paying for it. So he buys the black paint. But before he can paint over Noddy, he has to get a black marker pen and colour in all these, the baubles and all these hats. <laughs> and I think there's a thousand of them. And then he paints it black. And one of my favourite bits... And again, a joke I didn't particularly get as a child, but uh, oh god, it I love it now. It's the bit where he's sitting there with joysticks on because obviously the room smells of paint, and his dad pokes his head in and he says night then, and he says oh bloody hell, because uh, it's all black. And then he sees the joysticks. He goes what are they? And he goes joysticks. And he goes I won't have you messing with jokes, so you can get that idea out of your inscrutable Oriental head, right? <laughs> get that through your inscrutable Oriental head. <laughs> There's little jokes in here that when I was a kid I didn't get at all, but when you revisit them as you're older, you know, like when he paints his room and then he says, now I know how Rembrandt felt after painting the Sistine Chapel in Venice. And when he's re- he wears red socks to school by accident and gets sent home, and then it becomes this whole political thing, because Pandora, the, the love of his life, which I must also say the Ian Jury song is a huge part of my childhood. Every time I hear that now I get the pangs of, oh, like excitement of childhood. Um, but he goes to see her parents, who are, uh, are obviously like rabid socialists. They, they'd probably be in momentum now. Yeah, they're Corbynites, aren't they? They are Corbynites, because uh, they were particularly interested that he chose red socks as a sign of protest. <laughs> but Pandora's dad, Ivan, 
<laughs> lends him the ragged trousered philanthropist. I'll read the ragged trousered philanthropists tonight. I'm quite interested in stamp collecting. Which again is just such a great joke. It holds it really well, I think. It really does. It's timeless because it's a time capsule. It's it's of that particular period because it, it was done in 1985, but it's based in 1982, isn't it? Because it's the Falklands and all that. Um, so yeah, it works for that. It's a timepiece. I mean, it, you could make it now, but you'd have to base it back then. So there's no point. It's a shame they gave up making them, isn't it? Because there was quite a few sequels, wasn't there? It is. They came back and made one about 15 years ago, the Cappuccino years. Oh, did they? I've forgotten about yeah, that. Yeah, with Stephen Mangan playing Adrian. And, it, and it, I love Stephen Mangan. I just don't think it particularly worked with him. I suppose I'm a bit biased because it's like if someone... It's like with Doctor Who, you know, when someone replaces the one you love, you just don't like them as much. Yeah. Let's not go there. Let's not go there, no. Moving swiftly on, your 10pm slot is filled by another sitcom. Father Ted, it's kicking Bishop Brennan up the arse. Brilliant title. It isn't it. This was a second part of a two-parter story. The first one being that Ted has to compete with the other island with an over-60s football tournament. And Ted's got a ringer because he's got someone in a wheelchair that he's controlling via remote controls wearing fake arms. So he loses, and then the, the, the forfeit is he has to do anything the other person says. They say you have to kick Bishop Brennan up the arse. So in this episode, it's exactly what he has to do, and he has to come up with a devious way of doing it. I absolutely adore Father Ted. I think it's one of those... When it was on, I knew... I mean, I'm no comedy historian or anything, but it was one of those things where you watch it and you go, shit, this is like Forty Towers good, you know? And that doesn't happen very often. This is Dad's Army, Forty Towers. It's in that pantheon of Titan sitcoms because the sit is so, so brilliant. I mean, it's something that no one would ever approach, and they approach it with such, oh, it's just just such brilliance, and it's so beautifully done. The little world they build, and the dynamics of all the characters, and, and then this episode just culminates with just one of the funniest visual jokes you'll ever see. Where And the, the great joke being that when they do actually kick him up the arse, they manage to do it in such a way that he doesn't really realise what's happened. Ted, why don't you just kick him up the arse and then act like nothing happened? Brilliant, dude. No, Ted, seriously. Look at it this way. How scared are you of Len? Very scared. Exactly. So how likely would it be for you to kick him up the arse? (laughs) Well, not likely at all. Exactly. So when you kick him up the arse, just carry on like nothing happened. He'd never believe that you'd be brave enough to kick him up the arse. He'd think he just imagined it. My God, that, that might work. That might well work. I'm going to do it, Dougal. I'm ready, as God is my witness. I will kick Bishop Brennan up the arse. He goes to meet the Pope at the Vatican (laughs) with this look on his face of just complete confusion. And then as he meets the Pope, he says, they did kick me up the arse. And he races back to Craggy Island. And then when he arrives, he's got this massive 30-foot-long cloak as he's shouting Krilly and running towards the house. And it's just, it's just, um, I mean, it's just like the, the peak of Ted, and Ted was so good anyway. Krilly! Ah. <laughs> Hello, Len. <laughs> Don't call me Len, you little prick. <laughs> I'm a bishop. All right. Well done. 
You know, this type of thing 24 hours a day, huh? All right, Krilly, I'll make this short. Show me the likeness and I'll be off. I have to be off to Rome tomorrow for an audience with the Pope. I love those programmes. Have you seen the one with Elton John? I know they were going to end it on three. And it's so sad what happened to Dermot Morgan. And I think they were going to decide to end it with the third series anyway. So this is just... Um, it's just brilliant. It was never bettered. But even when it was, wasn't as good as this, it was still miles better than any other sitcoms around at that time. Well, you're going to keep laughing because your 10.30 choice is another sitcom. Once in every lifetime comes a love like this Oh, I need you, you need me Oh, my darling, can't you see Young ones, darling, we're the young ones The young ones shouldn't be afraid The young ones, flood uh, and this is this is so important to me because when 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 I was this this was on when I was five, and believe it or not, my brother was five years older than me. At this point, we shared a room, and um, my dad, I guess, in the days before you could get chuck an iPad at a kid, my dad had figured out a way that he could put a TV in our room, and he used to say, "I'll pipe something up to you," and what he'd do is he'd just play a video from downstairs. And we'd just sit upstairs watching it. And I guess him and my mother would get up to all sorts. I don't know. Um, but that particular night, he I think it was always Laurel and Hardy videos he'd play us, which was always nice, or Hancock or something. But that night, we suddenly, um, we, we finished watching something and then my brother just meddled with the telly. And I don't know how, but we got BBC. And it was the, um, it was the Young Ones episode, Oil. And I remember watching... Vivian get a lump of coal, you know, get the uh, pickaxe through his head and thinking, Jesus Christ, so I was five. And then we just used to secretly watch it every week. <laughs> I've just seen the most amazing thing in the garden. <laughs> Neil biffed himself in the face with a frying pan. Rick, you've been looking out of that window for three hours now. Yes, well, it's hardly surprising, is it? Vivian put super glue all over the pane. <laughs> Did I? That was a good joke. <laughs> I'll probably be disfigured for life, Vivian, and you'll have to pay. Yeah, and then I'll be laughing. <laughs> Not you, matey. That's for sure. Yeah, well, just don't break the glass when you tear your face off, that's all. I won't. I won't because... <laughs> it's not true! <laughs> it was a joke I made up, and you fell for it like the fascists you are! <laughs> God, I'm bored. Might as well be listening to Genesis. <laughs> we used to go to bed, and we used to just put the young ones on, and Norm and Dad didn't know. And, uh, yeah, I remember watching Flood. And I just remember thinking it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. I'm so jealous. I was I was 11 years old and it was banned in my house. So you it? managed to see it instead of me. That's outrageous. Yeah, and I was five. <laughs> and I probably didn't understand any of it, but I remember the little bits. I remember the I remember crying with laughter at the um you know the ditch, throw him in the ditch, or get him in, get in the ditch, and Halen Pace there just constantly getting in the ditch at the beginning, and and the little puppetry stuff. And I remember oh I nearly died laughing at Alexi saying, Mr. Poo Poo goes to the lavatory. Yeah, the sort of things I'd go to school the next day and say that, and people would just be like, what the hell are you talking about? And by the time the second series started, two years later, my parents my parents were incredibly weird. They just didn't care what we watched. And by the time the second series started, we all sat down and watched it together. Um, and I've told this story on other podcasts, but they were, they were cool about me renting out horror films as well. But yeah, I remember Flood being particularly important because it finished and I remember being really upset thinking, is that it? 
because it was our little secret project that we used to have and it was kind of like that kid in the never ending story we'd go upstairs and watch the young ones and I saw Blackadder I saw the first series of Blackadder in the same way so is the young ones something you revisit quite often do you still watch it today yes I do still watch it I watch it a lot because I think it's just unbelievably brilliant and it's, 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 it's there was nothing like it before that and there were lots like it after that but before that there was absolutely nothing I mean you could argue there's elements of it of Q in it you know there's little bits of anarchy and stuff but bits of python here and bits there. of python yeah they do deliberate nods at python with you know the is this a cheese shop no well that's that sketch knackered all that <laughs> sort of thing um but there's there's no sitcom i would argue before this that was anything like it and everything afterwards was intentionally like it to think that rick mail lisa mayer and ben elton wrote this when they were so young well literally the young ones uh it's just extraordinary and um it will never get old for me because it's just so funny. I mean, even though if it was, if I was to show it to my kids at the appropriate age, there's a lot of it they wouldn't understand because it's so kind of meta of its time, particularly the Video Nasty episode because then I have to explain to them what a Video Nasty is, what a video is, and what a video player is. But apart from that, it will stand up. <laughs> you gay black bastards, we're going to victimise you. Oh no! Who can help us now? Oh no, people's poet. Gosh, people's poet, is it really you? Yes, it is. And you pigs are in for a pretty big shock. Right on. <laughs> what do you think you're doing, pig? Whack! Do you really give a fig, pig? Bam! And what's your favourite sort of gig, pig? Barry Manilow or the black and white minstrel show? Fuck off! But yeah, it's something for me that is just so dear to me, and I could, there's no way. I mean, I really had to. Uh, I really had to scrabble to, you know, to think of things. Like I said to you earlier, it was like simultaneously the hardest and easiest thing ever. But this was always on on there. Okay, John, it's almost 11 o'clock. It's time for your final choice. But before we begin, would you like a gin and tonic? Absolutely, I would. People often think that because Schweppes is the extraordinary tonic water, it should be treated in an extraordinary way. Now, it's true, everything Schweppes touches, it improves. And it's true, only Schweppes has that famous Schweppes with its curiously refreshing quality. But you don't have to go to such great lengths. Schweppes makes things special anytime, any place. Schweppes tonic water, the taste maker, anytime, any place. I tell you what, John, I'll just pop out to the off license and get some tonic water for us while you introduce your final programme. <laughs> Well, I, I, having listened to your other ones and seen your other lists, people often end on a film, or sometimes do. And I thought, what better thing to end on than Mr. Johnny Lives Next Door, which is a comic strip film. Now, if people don't know, the comic strip, were, they did stuff for Channel 4. It was Peter Richardson, Nigel Planer, Rick Mayle, Dawn French, Adrian Edmondson, Jennifer Saunders, etc. And they made various films, fam most famous one being Five Go Mad in Dorset. And the bullshitters, etc. Now, this came out in 1988. And again, it was something I watched with my brother. And I nearly died laughing all the way through this. And I went into school the next day. So I'd have been 11. And literally nobody watched it. And then I spent the rest of my 
sort of formative years, saying to people, Did you, do you, have you seen Mr. Johnny Lives Next Door? And they go, what's that? And it was like that for years. And then eventually you get online and then people are talking about it. And it's just, it's one, it's literally, it's, it's probably in my top five favourite comedy films. I think it's so funny. And I had the absolute pleasure this year of being able to put on a few 30th anniversary screenings. And it's been one of the most fun things ever because when we did the first one, uh, people were coming from all over the country. Some people come from Israel. Uh, and I, I, I did these screenings with Roland Riveron, who's in it a bit and co-wrote it. And it's beautiful to see that it's out there and people know what it is. Because for years I thought, I knew I hadn't made it up because we taped it and had it on tape and was able to watch it a lot. And I'd always show it to people who came around. But it's so nice, and that's one of the wonderful things about the internet, is that you can connect with these people. So, Nicholas, I hear they're making Sale of the Century into a film. Hey, well, Nicholas, I look, I can light my fire! Oh. Ah. Oh. <laughs> uh, what exactly uh, <coughs> was your winning slogan? Never, ever, bloody anything, ever. And that was your winning slogan? That's the one, Nicky! Again, like the young ones, it's such a dear thing to me I just think it's just an absolute work of art from start to finish it has no bagginess to it it's just so pacey it starts off and doesn't stop and it's got some wonderful jokes Nicholas Parsons is in it taking the piss out of himself beautifully Peter Cook is in it effing and jeffing all over the place as Mr Jolly as the eponymous Mr Jolly who lives next door yeah and Peter Richardson kind of playing against type as this sort of weird slimy bad guy and it's got Saunders from The Living Daylights in it as a character called Jaime Henderson. So it's just win-win. It's the fifth time you've been round here and I've told you every time that I don't want to buy anything from your Mr Love Juice. But to show you there's no hard feelings, I'm prepared to order one plate of tonic water. Tonic water, is it? Yes, tonic water. <laughs> tonic water, he says. Oh, really? Tonic water? Did you say tonic water? Yes, tonic water. He said tonic water. You say tonic water, do you? Yes, tonic water is what I say. If it's tonic water you want, it's tonic water you'll get. Mon. I mean, how do you even describe it to someone who hasn't seen it? You can't, really, because it's one of those things no. that just sounds so weird. Or, so, or even just so uninteresting. It's about these guys that live above an off-licence. And they get a... It's, it's, it's a case of mistaken identity. They get a package that's meant for their neighbour... And in it, it says you have to take out Nicholas Parsons. But because these guys are escorts, in inverted commas, and again, it's mistaken identity again, because they think escorts means that you literally just take someone to a party or to a pub. They don't realise it's got any sexual connotation. which And they also think that Chinese people are French. Um, so there's just... Oh God, you, you just can't do any justice. You have to just plonk someone in front of it and just say, just f***ing watch it, because it's one of the funniest things ever made. Dreamy time escorts! No job too big, door too door. We are on the phone. <laughs> Dreamy time escorts, monsieur! Do you want to go to that toilet now? Do you mind if I use your telephone? Come on, let's make it messy! Get me room service. Come on, let's duck. Room service, get me eight gins. Now, I better make that 16 large ones. Who dares gins? Hang on, I'll find out. What's the room number? And I found out through um, doing the things with Riveron that he makes a couple of jokes in there about Terry Scott. Well, they're the strangest Mr and Mrs Cooper I've ever met. 
Are you sure they're not Terry Scott's winners? Hey, and it turns out that Nicholas Parsons and Terry Scott have had this running feud. They didn't like each other. So that was him having a dig at Terry Scott, which I think is amazing. So this is how John Rain's perfect night in shapes up. Danny Kendall comes to the end of the line in Grange Hill at 7.30 and at 8 o'clock, Martin finds himself with new neighbours in ever-decreasing circles. In Hancock's half hour at 8.30, there's a page missing. And then, aha! I'm Alan Partridge is at 9. Adrian Mole adds another entry to his secret diary at 9.30. And at 10 o'clock, they're kicking Father Brennan up the arse in Father Ted. London ends up underwater, thanks to the young ones at 10.30. And then it's gin and tonic all round at 11 o'clock, when the comic strip presents Mr Jolly Lives Next Door. Well, I'll be setting my video for sure. My final question to you, John, is in a perfect world, who would you like to spend your perfect night in with, living or dead? Rick Mail. Had to be, didn't it, really? Yeah. yeah Good well. luck getting Rick Mail to sit through ever-decreasing circles. <laughs> he'd, he'd probably just go and have a fag or something. I think he'd be all right with Hancock, because Bottom is Hancock, essentially. Yes. Uh, and I know, I'm pretty sure he's a Hancock fan. Not sure. Adrian Molly might like because he can do his Birmingham accent. He can do some Kevin Turvey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Adrian. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thank you, Neil. It was a pleasure. <laughs>